Well, that hymn sets us up nicely as we move now to this last portion of Acts chapter 28. I have to say, I uh, feel like the occasion of finishing this great book. Can we start it over? Uh, I just don't want to say. I don't want to say goodbye to this remarkable truth as the Lord laid the apostolic foundation for his church and as he's promised his presence with us as we continue building upon that foundation today. So let us give our attention to God's word and pray that we might be a church befitting of the name built upon Jesus Christ, following in the train of the apostles. Acts 28, verses 17 through 31. After three days, Paul called together with the local leaders, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one, excuse me, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God's word. I'm going to give away the kids' quiz. Five points to my outline. Constancy, context, conversion, cost, Christ. First, constancy. I wish I had circled that word every time Calvin uses it to describe Paul's apostolic ministry in his Acts commentary. Don teaches a weekly Bible study on the book of Acts. He and I have commented with one another numerous times on Calvin's use of that word and on the remarkable contours of Paul's labor for the sake of Jesus Christ that occasioned Paul's observation, excuse me, Calvin's observation. See, even at a mere biographical level, 
There are few lives in the history of the world that compare with Paul's. His productivity, his traveling ministry, his focus upon the needs of others, his writing ministry, not to mention his preaching ministry. Verse 17, remember that long journey after the long-awaited stall in Jerusalem, he finally arrived in Rome. Verse 17, three days, three days after he arrived in Rome, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. That is serious gospel constancy. Not three years, not three months, not three weeks. But after this journey that took him to the brink of death, he finally arrives in Rome right on cue. Paul continues with the gospel beats. Second context. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem over two years prior at the insistence of the Jews. You remember the Jewish plot? They were going to move him from one facility for, for his hearing to another. But what was the real end game? They intended to kill him in route. When Paul addressed fellow Jews with the gospel, he was almost always in harm's way. It almost always led to persecution and pain. Acts 9, verse 23, three years after his conversion back in Damascus, the Jews plotted to kill him. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Paul and Barnabas ministered the gospel in the synagogue of Iconium. The Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against them. Have you ever had someone poison someone else's mind against you? It was a no-win situation for Paul and Barnabas, no matter what they said, and there was an attempt to stone them. Chapter 14, verses 19 and following, the Jews from Iconium hunted Paul down in Lystra. The Gentiles weren't able to kill you in Iconium. Well, then we'll come and do it ourselves in Lystra, 20 miles away. And they did stone him to the point of what they thought was his death. He survived. Chapter 17, verses 2 and following, Paul and Silas in the synagogue in Thessalonica, the Jews were jealous. Who does this guy think he is taking our followers from us? They aroused a violent mob. Chapter 18, verses 4 and following, Paul in the synagogue in Corinth opposed and reviled. Chapter 19, verses 8 and following, he spoke in the synagogue in Ephesus opposed by many of the Jews. Chapter 20, verse 3, Jewish plots against Paul in Greece. And then the attack in Jerusalem that I just mentioned, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You probably remember from Sunday school, 40 lashes was the number that would kill a man. And he was given five different times by his fellow Jews, meaning by the church. He was beaten one stroke short of death. It's been over 25 years since Paul's conversion to Christ on that Damascus road. He was probably converted in AD 33. He probably arrived in Rome in AD 30. 
and he's been a faithful apostle for all that time. He's planted churches across the first century Mediterranean world at the risk of his life. He's now in his 50s. Maybe it's time to hand the baton. You know, I made it to Rome, sign a book deal. Maybe I can endorse some young apostles' books and tell them, this guy is great. You should believe in him. Leave the heavy lifting to the next generation. Let others get their hands dirty for a change. Not Paul. Not then. Not ever. His life was worth living if it meant that he could testify to the grace of God in the gospel, come what may. See, Paul drank deeply from the school of the Old Testament prophets. Do what you must to me, but I love you too much to stop preaching his name. And so he relentlessly in constancy pressed on. People of God, we are so soft. We are so weak. We see danger. We run from it even when we know others will be harmed or destroyed if they are left unaided. We avoid inconvenience at all costs. We maximize our comforts, even if it means others are left bleeding out on the side of the road. I remember when I first heard about the Christian woman, Rachel Denhollander, a victim of sexual abuse, and then a victim of the sexual abuse cover-up regarding that predatory physical therapist at Michigan State, the women's gymnastics team. Then Hollander and others had tried for years to get people to help them. And they were rebuffed at every turn because they weren't a part of the guild. They didn't know the power players, the good old boys who knew how to tuck things away in the dark. And finally, in the Lord's providence, a journalist was willing to speak with her and the vile history of sexual abuse was disclosed. Den Hollander and others were eventually vindicated. But then maybe in some ways the darker punchline. Surprise, surprise. They became celebrities to whom everyone now listens because America loves a winner. Where were those friends when Den Hollander's chips were down? Paul was a man who ran into not away from danger. Personal reputation? Who cares? There is someone in need of assistance. We must go and help. If he saw a man bleeding out on the side of the road, like the good Samaritan, he couldn't help but stop and intervene. And so too when he came to Rome. Have you ever put your reputation on the line for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Defended Christ's name. Defended the name of the innocent, regardless of the consequence that would come upon your life. If so, what caused that impulse? 
If not, why not? Why would you allow yourself to entertain slander and gossip knowing the pain and the disunity that it causes? Why? Why would you allow it and not speak of? Paul knew gospel living is messy. And if you embrace it, you will forfeit your tidy life subject to your control. Perhaps today for all of us is a day of reckoning, of repentance, so that we bear the fruit of gospel constancy. We rid ourselves of those spiritual calluses, the selfishness which causes us not to feel. Children, if you've ever developed a callus, you can stick a pin in that callus and it doesn't hurt you. But if you stick a pin in a tender part of your hand, it you can feel it. It does hurt. And part of the Christian life is stripping away those selfish calluses that I've built up that have made me able to exist in the world without speaking up for the name of Christ because I've found a more comfortable path and selfish game. Third, conversion. Paul never got over his conversion. I imagine when we meet Paul in heaven, he is going to be happy to tell us yet again about what happened to him on the Damascus Road when he met our gracious and exalted Savior. Why is that important for this particular topic? Because Pharisaical Saul would have been the last person to stop and help someone else in danger. He cared about self-glory, self-promotion, self-advancement, self-protection, self-righteousness. In fact, that's not just my conjecture. Faithful Stephen was quite literally bleeding out because of his faithful gospel ministry. He was stoned by ruthless Jews. What did Pharisaical Saul do? Chapter 8, verse 1. He approved of Stephen's unjust execution. Chapter 8, verse 3. He didn't just watch others bleed and die. He went into Christians' homes and he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Maybe you've never thought about this following statement. You can take it to the bank. Self-righteousness is an angry religion, a raging, furious religion. Genuine, humble Christians expose the fangs of self-righteous monsters. How does it work? Well, if I'm standing in Christ's righteousness, it's because I have no righteousness of my own. And I'm very willing to admit that. But I actually have a perfect and true righteousness in which I stand before the throne room of God. And he therefore accepts me. A self-righteous person a person who dresses himself in his own robes of religious deeds is enraged at such a reality. Why? 
Because that reality reveals Isaiah 64, verse 6, I, the person looking to myself for righteousness, am actually wearing bloody rags. My righteousness is feigned. My righteousness is fake. My righteousness is not righteousness as all at all. All my righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And Paul was once offended by righteous Stephen. He is now offending others as he is wearing the righteousness of Christ. He never got over the merciful voice of his Savior on the Damascus road. Christ exchanged Paul's robes of self-righteousness for his own beautiful garments of salvation so that Paul had a perfect standing before God because of Christ's perfect obedience in Paul's place on this earth, Christ's perfect death on the cross, satisfying the Father's wrath, Christ's perfect resurrection righteousness at the right hand of God. And that provides a clue for how conversion leads to gospel constancy in a way that nothing else can. Children, whom is a self-righteous person fixated upon? Whom is a self-righteous person preoccupied with, focused upon? Self-righteousness. That person is focused upon himself. Focused on my own merit, my own attempts to earn a standing before God. Cannot take my eyes off of myself. So it is not surprising that such a selfish preoccupation shows up in my lifestyle. My eyes are not on Christ, nor are they on the needs of others because they're solely focused upon self. Matthew 23 the Pharisees, the ultimate expressions of self-righteousness. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, fixated with self, and they wanted others to be fixated with them as well. And then verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 23, notice where their attention is and notice where it is not. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and the greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi, being called teacher by others. Pharisees were not capable of giving what is best to others. They were not capable of intuiting and understanding and meeting others' needs because Pharisees were seeking those things for themselves. His own glory his own comfort, his own advance. You will never know how to love until you've met your loving and forgiving Savior at the right hand of God. Until then, you will only and ever be preoccupied with self. Self-righteousness, selfish living, work together hand in glove. But if you do know Christ, you will be fixated upon Christ's righteousness and you will then begin to learn to fixate upon other people's needs. Matthew 23, verse 11, in that context of dismantling 
Pharisaism, Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant, laying down one's life in love. And you see what happens. The Christian looks outside of himself for the first time in his conversion, and he sees Christ. And then, able to look outside of himself for the first time, he looks beyond himself, and he begins to see, wait, you've been here my whole life. I never paid a bit of attention to you. I never cared about your needs. But now I'm beginning to see there's a whole world outside of the prison in which I had entrapped myself for selfish gain. I want to serve with humility and love. Fourth, cost. Do you remember what else Paul was taught at his conversion? It's something we must recapture in the modern church. It's often called the cost of discipleship. I almost feel like in saying those words, it's like we got to blow the dust off of these books that we should have been reading, of this book that we should have been reading, because that's not terminology that's used in the modern church the way it has been in the church historically. Three days after Paul's conversion, Christ said to Ananias, chapter 9, verse 16 of Acts, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my Lord. Constancy for the sake of Christ involves a theology of suffering for the sake of Christ. It's essential for the apostles, of course. They had to be realistic about what it was they were signing up for if they were to endure the hardships which were required. But the whole of Scripture demonstrates suffering is a call of every single believer in the history of the world. Luke 9.23, Jesus' words, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Do you hear Jesus' words? Anyone, not just the apostles, of course it's the apostles, but anyone, child, adult, male, female, rich, poor, every nationality, every ethnicity, it doesn't matter your role in the church. Every Christian in the history of the world is called, says Jesus, to deny himself. Now, what exactly does that mean? The context of Jesus' words, Luke 9, verse 25, the danger of someone gaining the whole world and yet forfeiting his soul. Verse 24, selfishly saving one's life and thereby ironically losing it eternally. Non-Christian worldview, yes to everything that pleases me, my pleasure, my accolades, my pursuits. Christian worldview, no, no more. No longer will I live in such selfish chains. It was in college when God awakened me to these matters. 
I began to be nauseated at the self-seeking quality of my life, which I had previously boasted in. I could never have understood what was the problem. I was procuring my advancements, my successes, my social advance, my financial gain, my glory, and yes, of course, with a little bit of a coating of Jesus on top. And I began to feel sick at my stomach. And I've got it all wrong. And yet I'm claiming to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I was so thankful, finally, to see that genuine conversion in Christ means moving out of that world and into an entirely new world order by God's grace. Every believer must take up his own individual cross every single day and follow Jesus. Those are Jesus' words. I'm simply telling you what Jesus said. The cross, an instrument of crucifixion, of death, of suffering and pain. Now, precision is mandatory in our definitions. Because the gospel of God's free grace to sinners is at stake in this discussion. Here's how we say it in our home. Christ is our Savior. He's also our example. But he cannot be our example unless he's first our Savior. And I hope you can appreciate why we say it just that way. First, Christ cross alone is the means by which we're redeemed, forgiven from our sins. First Peter 2, verse 21. Some of you have been studying this book. Christ also suffered for you. That great hymn, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia. What a savior. It is his cross 2,000 years ago where he fully endured God's wrath for our sins. He suffered in your place to save you from your pride, your selfishness, your lovelessness. Christ's sufferings did for you what your sufferings could never have done. That's Christ as Savior. But then First Peter 2, verse 21 again, leaving you and examples so that you might follow in his steps follow in his steps of loving and selfless suffering jesus take up your cross every single day follow me in my path of suffering christ as example and we don't get to pick or choose we receive both or we receive neither Christ, his cross as our Savior. You can think of that in terms of our justification, our legal acceptance, the righteousness before God by faith in him. And then think about taking up your cross daily as a Christian in terms of your sanctification, that process by which God is actually changing you into the image of your Savior. Philippians 3, verse 10. What form does our sanctification take when the Spirit lays hold of our lives? 
Paul says, we share in Christ's suffering, becoming like him in his death. The Spirit conforms us into the image of our suffering Savior as we begin to live lives that reflect his honor in the face of God. We don't talk enough about these realities in the Christian community. But according to the Bible, there is no Christian community where these realities are not at the core. Enjoying time as together as Christians is wonderful, but not if it masks what we're not doing at the individual levels. And put it this way. I cannot carry your cross for you. You cannot carry my cross for me. Individual responsibilities in the school of Christ. Children, your parents cannot carry your spiritual cross. You are called, if you are a believer, to take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus by the power of the grace of God. Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, great crowds accompanying Jesus. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciples. Jesus was saying to his crowd, can I just say time out for one second? You see how silly the modern church is? We would be so worried. Okay, we've got this mass of people. How do we keep them on the hook? Just reel them in slow, reel them in slow. Jesus says, I just want you all to know, if not this, then you cannot do that. He's watching the people's windows, watching the crowds begin to leave. Jesus was saying every other loyalty and allegiance in the world, including the blessing of Christian families, must subordinate itself to the claims of Christ upon my individual life. Do you believe Jesus' word? Are you willing to live as it? even when it brings about tremendous consequence and pain. You see why unbiblical views of ministry tempt us? Think about it. Yeah, we pay the priest in my church. He's the one who suffers for Christ. The rest of us are just kind of regular Christians doing the bare minimum to get by. But we pay our dues and keep the church's doors open and when we watch those guys suffer for the sake of the gospel. God says all Christians are priests in the Gospels, and all Christians have the same gospel call to Marisha, take up the call, and follow Jesus. Giving to the church doesn't do anything to absolve us of those most basic Christians' responsibilities. Luke 14, verse 28. Jesus told the crowds to count the cross. The contrary to my previous way of thinking, Christ was not an addition to our former life agenda. He actually changes our life agenda completely. 
And I wrestled with this concept of the class of discipleship in college, and I was confused at first, and maybe you've been confused as you've considered it. See, I was coming to terms with my sin. I was beginning to understand the lavish love and forgiveness of God, and I was rightly overjoyed that God would be so gracious to forgive my sin. I didn't understand this idea of counting the cost for for my um, Savior because I was thinking to myself, I want to give him everything. I don't care how much it costs me. Everything he asks of me is mere small offering in response to his mercy and love. And then it clarified for me. Counting the cost of discipleship is simply asking, do you really mean what you just said? Will you really give him everything? No fingers crossed, no secret stash. I just want to live for your holy name. Have you pushed all in for your saving? Do you have a plan B? Do you have a backstop? Do you have an emergency chute just in case you need it, just in case he doesn't prove to be all that you expected of him? Christ said the builder must consider whether he has adequate materials for his building project. The king must determine whether he has adequate troops to enter war. Otherwise, the builder will construct a foundation, but there will be no building. And the king will have to raise the white flag. How many so-called Christians have you known who seemed to start so well, but who folded when the going got tough? who redefined reality when their experience conflicted with God's word. I once got an angry letter from a family leaving our church because I had mentioned in a sermon that homosexuality is sin. The letter reported that God had made this family's child homosexual and that they'd be leaving our church for another church which preaches the whole word of God but which doesn't challenge the way God allegedly made their child. I don't know God's secret purposes in our spiraling, free-falling Western culture as we watch the church bow the knee to bail at such ferocious threats. I don't know God's secret purposes midst the trials right here in this congregation, but I pray every day I will keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus defined in his word, no matter what may come. His sobering words in Luke 14, verse 33, for all of us. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus I thought you were the loving Jesus and God the Father was the wrathful God of the Old Testament and then Paul kind of messed things up. Jesus' words. If you are not willing to push all in, you are not a Christian. Let's be honest and fall before his throne of mercy. But then the joy, the joy of all of this Christian suffering belongs to Christians. 
That's exactly what we don't deserve to be. It's exactly what we were not in our former unbelief. It's a miracle, a miracle of the grace of God. I believe in Jesus and I have the privilege of sharing in his sufferings until that day when I meet him face to face. So we rejoice in this new identity, including its hardships, instead of bemoaning it and seeking to circumvent the, the pain. Sadly, I'm the first to have to plead guilty how often when trial sets in my life or sets in our church, we can be so fixated upon the drama of the trial rather than fixating upon the joy, joy of belonging to Jesus midst the occasion of the pain. Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God in the Philippian prison. Philippians 2, 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, says Paul to the Philippians, that's painful sacrificial service. Upon the sacrificial, painful offering of your faith, you too are suffering. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Trial often breeds negativity and suspicion in Christian community. What if it were to be the means by which God increased our joy? He loves us. We have joy inexpressible, and very soon we will see the one who loves us, whom we love, whom we cannot presently see. Back to Acts briefly. Paul had been called every name in the book. He was worshipped as a god. He was hated as a demon. He was loved and then betrayed. Even in his promised arrival in Rome, he was taken to the brink of death. Chapter 28, verse 15 of Acts. He met some of the brothers from the church in Rome to whom he had previously written with longing and affection. If you read the first chapter of the book of Romans, you'll see how much he loved this church, which he had not yet met. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, Luke tells us, Acts 28, 15. Now he's under house arrest. Three days later, he does not schedule an extended fellowship time with those believers as great as that fellowship would have been. He invites the leaders of the Jews into his home. It was the leaders of the Jews who'd attacked him the past 25 years and who had put him in this present predicament. You see what Paul was doing. Gospel constancy. Denying himself, taking up his cross, following his Savior, his Savior who continued to minister, minister the gospel until his dying breath when he rescued the sinful thief on the cross from hell. Matthew 10, persecution would come upon the apostles, even from among God's people. In those three years of isolation after his conversion in modern-day Turkey, Paul surely learned and relearned these truths. Paul knew in his suffering. It's exactly what I signed up for. All of the disclaimers were there the day of my conversion. Jesus told me exactly what to expect. 
what did you sign up for? When you became a Christian, what were you expecting? What were your demands? A Christianized version of the American dream? We feel a little less guilty about our lives because we sprinkle some Jesus-oriented service projects in there. Or biblical Christianity. A kingdom which clashes against every single value we once held dear. Using our homes for the sake of the gospel. Paul, under house arrest, and yet it's a revolving door, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. Let's open our homes that way. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul. You have somewhere you live, you rent, you own. Paul's under house arrest. How could He could easily have explained his circumstances as a means by which he didn't need to minister. But the simplicity of opening his home and therein speaking about the claims of Jesus Christ. And Paul was still an unbeliever. He also learned this gospel constancy in the ministry and the martyrdom of faithful Stephen. Remember when Stephen calmly prayed for his foes with his dying breath? Paul heard that message. He likely heard that prayer, and he witnessed Stephen's life, all of which the Lord used to draw Paul to saving faith. Last point, we'll return to it next week. We need to see it this morning as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. What was Paul's message to his visitors? You're not going to believe how hard life has been. I've been a apostle for 25 years, and all I get is more and more pain from people like you. I've been trying to help the fellow Jews, and all they do is mistreat me. No. Paul's message to these leaders of the Jews, Christ. Christ only. Christ always. Verse 23, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's talk less about the drama of our trials and more about the drama of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to rescue us in the fullness of time. We don't count the cost of Christian discipleship in order to reflect a Christianized image of ourselves. We don't cultivate gospel constancy so that people will say how constant we are. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We follow Jesus in order to point others to Jesus without whom we and they would remain dead in our sins and under God's eternal wrath. What did you sign up for? What did you sign up for on the day of your conversion? By God's grace, have you, will you take up your cross? Amen.